We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app on thursday u.s district judge matthew Kennelly ruled that cook county sheriff tom dart must put new policies in place to protect the inmates at cook county jail from coronavirus but he refused to grant a motion to release or transfer detainees in bulk. But everyone agrees there are too many inmates at the jail for many reasons. Well, we're going to explore that and more with my guest this weekend, Cook County Public Defender Amy Campanelli. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Amy Campanelli's been the public defender for almost exactly five years, and her entire legal career seems to have been about defending people who need good lawyers but can't afford them. She joined the public defender's office in 1987 and has been there almost ever since. She had a private practice for a few years. Uh, Ms. Campanelli is an outspoken proponent of bond reform and court reform in general. She's worked with Chief Judge Timothy Evans on that and other issues, like making sure public defenders have the right to walk into police stations and represent arrestees when they ask for a lawyer. Needless to say, with the county jail becoming the biggest COVID-19 hotspot in the state, this is a, and one of the hot, biggest hotspots in the United States, this is a crisis that has Amy Campanelli's attention. And we are talking via conference call. Amy, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thank you, and good morning, Craig. Thanks for having me. Well, it is a pleasure, and frankly, at this time, it's a necessity. This, this timing for this could not have been more opportune. Uh, I don't want to say better, because this is a right. troubling time. Uh, but still, the case before Judge Kennelly pretty much encapsulates most of the things that we're going to want to talk about here. Um, but before we get to things like cash bond and the presumption of innocence, uh, let's talk about the situation at the jail itself. How bad is it getting there? Well, it's very bad. Obviously, we have, I think, almost 450 people now who have tested positive with the virus. I believe currently there's 22 people who have had to be hospitalized, so you know they are in serious condition. Um, others have fallen sick, maybe not having to be hospitalized. Many are correctional officers or staff who work in the jail, and many are my clients who are, quite frankly, at risk of becoming ill and even possibly dying. We had the second person, um, I'm not quite sure if it's one of my clients, but the second inmate has died as of yesterday at St. Anthony's Hospital. Now, Sheriff Dart, uh, along with County Board President Tony Preckwinkle and State's Attorney Kim Fox have all said 
they want to reduce the jail population. Uh, in some cases, the jail population has dropped, um, but still there was this lawsuit and still there's a lot of pressure. Why is that? Is it because it's going so slowly? Well, you know, approximately two and a half weeks ago, I filed a petition in court to ask for a mass release of certain clients who fell into certain categories. That petition wasn't denied in full, but it wasn't granted in full. And during that week, uh, I was able to secure the release of about 700 uh, detainees in just four days of my clients. And I thought that was amazing because before that, we'd been working very tediously with the state and the judges, and we only got about 100 people released, and that took you know more than eight days. So to me, it was slow. Now we are uh, getting the jail population down. I believe it's under 4,500 today. When I started a couple weeks, three weeks ago, it was at 5,600. But that's still too many people in the jail who cannot practice social distancing. I mean, uh, yesterday I was informed by one of my deputies who spoke to one of their female clients, that they are still living in these large rooms together, sharing uh, you know, bunk beds, one on top of the other, sharing showers, sharing sinks for 30 or 40 women. And it was no surprise I learned last night that 15 women now have tested positive for the virus. It just isn't uh, feasible with that many people in the jail, approximately 4,500 now, to safely um, allow those clients of mine or any clients in there to practice social distancing, to wear masks, to keep their cells clean or keep their areas clean, uh, keep the showers clean and the soap clean and get enough soap. So, you know, that's the situation in jail. It is dire right now. And, and unfortunately, you know, it's possible that more people may die and become seriously ill. And, and I'm very should, afraid of that. And we should probably establish here that in many cases, if not most, um, we're talking about people who are still presumed innocent. Absolutely. The majority of the people in the jail are pre-trial, meaning they haven't had their trial. They've been charged with an offense and they have not had their case in court yet. I would say it's about 85%. It could be as high as 90% of the people in the jail are pre-trial. So they are presumed innocent. And they have a right to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by a judge or a jury. But so, let me, yeah, let yeah. me raise the the uh, the other issue because you're going to hear from a number of citizens who, you know, are, are living in the neighborhoods where th these people come from, and even some police officials who will say, "Yes, pre-trial, but in a number of cases, these are people that this isn't their first time uh, in the jail. This isn't their first time. Some of them have convictions." Uh, for for some things, uh, for example, the one the er first prisoner who uh, died uh, had previous convictions, including uh, a sexual uh, offense. Uh, and people will say, "Yeah, but should they be out on the street? And isn't this a danger to the public?" Well, you know, trying to have a crystal ball right, and figure out who will commit a new offense if they are released on bond, who will commit a new violent offense. That's a very difficult thing to do. And Chief Judge Evans and all of us working as stakeholders, he has put into place a risk assessment tool to help the judges determine the risk of allowing this person to go back to their community and fight their case from the outside. 
And, you know, as far as the inmate who died recently and now another inmate has died, you know, sure, he had some criminal history and he had some history that obviously is a horrible history, but he served his time on that case. And are we going to be the United States? Are we going to continue on to make people wear a scarlet letter forever? He served his time and the case he was in custody on, he still was presumed innocent of and he still had a right to pretrial. So we did try to get that gentleman released and we were unsuccessful. His bond was set at 50,000 D, meaning he only needed $5,000 to, to people who are working, that's not a lot of money. People who have money, that's not a lot of money. But for him, a 59 year old man, he didn't have that money. And he had serious medical conditions. Uh, he should not have been in that jail. He should have been allowed to be released and live in his home. Uh, and you know, People who think that my clients are not human beings, they are mothers, they are daughters, they are brothers, they're sisters, they're aunts, they're uncles, they have family, they have homes to return to. And we have monitoring devices, right? We have the electronic monitoring device, we have curfew we can put in place, we can put GPS on people to make sure that we monitor them when they are released, if they need monitoring. But let me just say one last thing, Craig, and then we'll go on to the next question. For 50 years, we have locked everybody up because of the few who reoffend. For 50 years, we've done it wrong. Now we got to do it right. You don't lock up 990 people out of 1,000 because 10 will reoffend. But that's what we've done. It's not right, it's not constitutional. We have not followed the Constitution or the bail statute for decades. I've been doing this 32 years. And, you know, think about the people who were locked up who shouldn't have been locked up. Think about their lives that were destroyed. One night in jail can make someone uh, obviously um, lose their job, lose their connections, and quite frankly, make someone criminogenic. You think the jail is a nice place. We know it's not, right? We know it's a horrible place. And so is prison. So we have to rethink mass incarceration, and, and this is all coming to a head now, right? I, I agree, and you know what? Let's, let's keep on that, uh, that, that issue, because this raises the issue of cash bond, which for all the things that bond is supposed to be, which is basically making sure you show up for trial, uh, it has very often been punitive. You know, if there's a violent case, sometimes a judge may impose a million dollar bond, as if that is going to make a difference. And then retail theft might be $1,000. But as you point out, $100 can be an issue for somebody who needs to make that bond. What's been wrong with this picture uh, and, 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 and how it has stayed so wrong for so long? Well, I think we've just had a culture that, like I just said, that, you know, we're conservative and let's just keep someone in custody just in case they may reoffend without using any type of risk tool, without really thinking about it, without looking at a person that's standing in front of the judge, this is a human being who has a right to fight their case from home. And the outcomes are better. When people are released pre-trial and they come to court and they fight their case, uh, the outcomes are better in every way. They can trust that the prosecutor is fair. They trust the judge more. And I say this to law enforcement that I talk to all the time because of my police station unit, I say support this. Support lawyers coming to police stations after you've arrested someone. Because guess what? The community trusts you if you help them get a lawyer. 
if you follow their constitutional rights and you treat them appropriately and they, you treat them with respect, and that's the same with bond reform, Re holding someone in custody willy-nilly without really any justification except the charge, you know, is not fair. You really have to dig deep and you have to use the tools that we have in place and you have to look at the mitigation that the client presents. You know, are they going to flee the jurisdiction? And when I say flee the jurisdiction, we're not talking about just failing to appear in court. I'm talking about clients who are actually going to leave Chicago. You know, people do get warrants and they miss court for all sorts of reasons. They don't have the transportation. They forgot their court date. Now we have a court reminder system in place. Three weeks out, one week out, and the day before, people are reminded of their court dates. We have advocates all over Cook County helping me get my clients to court so they don't miss their court date and getting there on time, right? Because warrants are issued when clients show up late. And now they have a warrant. Now they're afraid to come back to court. Um, so we have to rethink that whole issue, too, with the failure to appear in court and holding that against a client when really they aren't absconding from the jurisdiction. They've lived in Chicago all their life. All their ties are to Chicago. We can find these people. They're not leaving to go to Central America or Europe, right? They're, and, you know, it's, it's all these things that, that play a part. And when people are released to their families, they do better if they can continue working, get back in school, look for employment. You know, we, we cannot have people locked up in jail unless they are a present threat to the community. And that's the only people who should be locked up, those who are really a threat to the community upon release. And I would say that we still have at least a thousand people in the Cook County Jail who should be released, who are not a threat to the community. Uh, and I know uh, that Chief Judge Timothy Evans, in fact, I was there when this was, was announced, uh, that he issued the order trying to keep people from remaining behind bars just because they're poor. And, and even at that time, the idea of people continuing to work and not losing their jobs was, was a major consideration too. But how is that order working in your opinion? Well, I think the order is working. It, it, you know, like you said, it might be slow going. It is really difficult to change decades of culture. And, but I think he, the judges who sit in our central bond court every day in our felony courthouse are doing amazing work. They are following the order. They are really making the findings that if someone has to be locked up, why someone has to be locked up instead of being released back to the community to fight their case. That's something new. They never really used to do that. They just used to say what the cash, okay, 50,000 D bond and not give a ruling as to why. So that's now on the record. So if we disagree, let's say my lawyer disagrees with the judge's finding, we can appeal that decision and try and get uh, the client out a different way from the appellate court with a ruling in place. Uh, you know, there's, I think that it's, it's working, but there are still several folks, prosecutors, judges, and, you know, quite frankly, other people who work in the defense, defense side who still haven't bought into this bail reform. You know, it's, it's still slow going. It's gonna take time for people to understand that this is a good thing, that we are protecting the public here, that it is better for the public when people can get, can get on with their lives so they don't reoffend, and we can invest in these people. Whether it's economic investment, get them into treatment if they need treatment, 
uh, you know, when you go into jail, your treatment's disruptive. If you've been part of a mental health treatment program or you have a substance abuse issue or, you know, some kind of trauma issue. My clients come to me, uh, and they present all sorts of issues. Uh, and we try to deal with those issues. And if they are released, they are set up with services because there's lots of great advocates in our county who are working to help my clients stay on the right path. I do not want more clients. I want less clients. I want to be part of the solution. I want my clients to come to court. I want my clients to feel that they can trust the system, that it's not unfair, that it's not discriminatory, that it's not racist. And I want them to do well when they're out there. I don't want them to reoffend, right? I want them to get to court on time. So other people feel the same way as me, and we are working together in collaboration. And that's how it is working. You're listening to News Radio 780's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking via Zoom conferencing with Amy Campanelli, the Cook County Public Defender. Uh, another thing that I want to talk about is, uh, is electronic monitoring. Because it seems in some cases, uh, some of the more, for lack of a better word, serious cases uh, where release is being considered, that's the, that's the bin you throw those people in. Uh, and I've had complaints from even the sheriff about that saying, first off, it's probably not what you think it is, and that it's not as secure as you think it is, that that he can't really tell exactly where somebody is. He can only tell where they're not. Um, and that that's not where you want to send perhaps people with violent tendencies. Um, is, is there a problem with even the, uh, the monitoring? Well, I'm not, uh, obviously Tom Dart, I, I don't know how they, the exact workings of electronic monitoring. I, this is the first really I've heard that they can't, see where someone is obviously in they other can words see if, if they're home they can see that they're somewhere within the vicinity of their home right um, but for example if they walk out on the porch where some of them have been shot uh for, for doing they're still inside the, the, technically they're in the realm but also once they leave the perimeter if they violate that uh, what what uh, sheriff dart said was okay we know they're not home we don't know where they are Right, there's a solution there. We have GPS and pretrial services, which is uh, which I would hope that more judges would allow clients to um, be monitored by the pretrial service agency under the chief judge. They have GPS and the sheriff can use GPS too. Um, and that would tell you in fact where someone is. It follows the person so they would know if they're on this block or that block. Um, we use it on uh, domestic violence cases when clients are supposed to stay away from their loved one or there's an order of protection in place. So there is a solution to that. But I do not agree with Tom Dart on when electronic monitoring should be used. Electronic monitoring is an extremely punitive monitoring device. People cannot leave their home. They cannot go out to the grocery store. They cannot pick their children up from daycare. They cannot go to work unless they get an order. And that takes time. And many of my clients have been complaining that they can't go to work and they can't look for employment. So it's, yes, you are home, but you're still in the custody of the Cook County Sheriff. And electronic monitoring, according to the pretrial risk assessment tool, is for those clients who present a high risk. So I disagree with Tom Dard. He's wrong about when you're supposed to use electronic monitoring. 
He might not want to have clients who are high risk on electronic monitoring, but that is what electronic monitoring is for. And that's how they're using it across the country, in Washington, D.C., in California, in other places that are doing bail reform. That's when you use electronic monitoring, where the clients who present a highest risk, but not the, not the most highest that they have to be in jail. Now, he, may, he doesn't like that, and I understand that. I've heard him talk about that. But I'm sorry, Tom, you're wrong. My clients are way over-monitored by electronic monitoring. There are way too many clients on the bracelet who do not need the bracelet. They might need a curfew. They not, might need pre, reporting to a pretrial service officer every week, um, phone contact, other, like I said, GPS. But, um, you know, he says electronic monitoring wasn't designed for that. That's not true. It's not true. That's, electronic monitoring is a, a very punitive monitoring device. And, you know, he could decide, I guess, that he doesn't want to do it anymore. And he could hand that over to the chief judge. Uh, he could do that. But he does have, obviously, a system in place. So many clients, the judges do put many clients, and I, I would say too many clients on the place. Okay. I want to turn to a couple of other topics before we run out of time. And one of them uh, should be close to your heart. Uh, how are you keeping your own lawyers safe right. uh, in, in this time? I mean, and, and, and really, how does the court even work? with social distancing uh, you know that this is a this is i'm sure has got to be an issue for how well and how you can service your clients it, it has been very difficult but i am amazed at what my lawyers have been doing we have uh worked with our technology team and obviously the bureau of technology under tony preckwinkle to get everybody virtual everybody has a laptop at home even my investigators and my support staff um, are working from home and the court system has really, you know, imagine this court system, and you know, Craig, how big it is and how spread out it is, right? And to get everybody to go virtual, the judges, the prosecutors, defense attorneys, us, has been an amazing feat. Uh, and we've done it. So now everybody is pretty virtual in every courthouse. There are still staff, but a very limited staff who are going to the courthouses for certain issues. We're, we're trying to work with the clerk's office more so that we can do all of our filings by e-file and we don't have to pass paperwork. That has been a little slow going, but again, we're working on it so that nobody really has to be in court. Now, the biggest problem for me, of course, is that my, my clients who are in custody and we've been working on a phone system with the jail so that my lawyers can call the jail and get a hold of their clients, but also the, the clients can call the main numbers and then they're forwarded to the desks of the lawyers, which are then forwarded to their cell phones or a Google phone. So in real time, my lawyers are getting calls from their clients from the jail. We can't have, we're not having any face-to-face -face with the clients, except if they come to bond court, of course, they're Zoom um, down, they're in the basement of the jail and we see them face-to-face -face, and we do interviews by Zoom the new clients who are coming in, the new clients who are arrested. Are you, are you uh, satisfied with the security of the, of the lawyer-client uh, relationship in those circumstances? We are. The, lawyer, the client is able to go to a breakout room and, be, um, and have a confidential conversation with the lawyer who's in either at home or at the beginning was in a different room at the courthouse, maybe up at their office. Yes, the confidentiality was very important when we set this up. We talked to the chief judge about this, his technology people, 
I just got to give a shout out to Mike Carroll, who works for the chief judge. He's amazing. And my staff, my technology staff, Amy Thompson and Joel Simberg, who have really, really done a yeoman's feat here. I can't say it anymore. Think about trying to get all of us virtual, every stakeholder and every person who comes in the building. And it's been an amazing feat. Now, I will say this. When we go back to normal, right? I do not want any of my clients on video. They got to be in court, face to face with that judge. And again, this is something that, you know, Tom Dart and I are a little bit at odds on. He wants to do video status court hearings. He's been wanting to do that for years before I was the public defender. And I will put my foot down. That is unconstitutional. A client has a right to be in court and a relationship develops between the judge and the client every time my client's families go to court, they see their loved one. The lawyer needs to have private conversations with that client. So clients have a right under the Sixth Amendment to be in court in person. Unfortunately, that's not happening now. Um, but and it's not happening now out of necessity. Uh, is it constitutional now? You know, the Illinois Supreme Court has made some rulings regarding speedy trial and and whether or not the statutory speedy trial is told, which the Illinois Supreme Court now has told. Unfortunately, the under the Sixth Amendment, the speedy trial constitutional, there's no exception for a public epidemic at all. A client has a right to a speedy trial under the Sixth Amendment, no matter what. So I would say tolling of the speedy trial is unconstitutional under the Sixth Amendment. But, you know, uh, it's so difficult to decide what to do in this situation. We are trying to service the clients the best we can, and we're hoping that this is extremely temporary. We see that in other states, you know, the curve is flattening and hopefully going down. Uh, so the chief judge's order ends on May 18th. I hope, I'm still looking forward to maybe it can end before then. Then we can get back on the road where we were before. Um. I almost hesitate to ask this question because we're so overwhelmed by coronavirus, but what's, what's on the horizon? Once we get past this, what's the next horizon or the next thing that needs to be really addressed for, for you and for your clients, besides getting more public defenders and better funding for the office? Right. We're always looking for that. And of course, I'm trying to hire social workers and other type mitigation specialists. I started a new mental health unit uh, to work with my clients with mental health. So I'm trying to get more resources for the lawyers and more lawyers work. And I'm, start, I'm trying to start an immigration unit, do some immigration work. But really for me, it's keeping the jail population down. If we get this jail population now that's under 4,500, let's say we get it down to 4,000 with the bail project now helping me bail out some of the clients who we weren't successful in court to getting their bonds reduced. Let's say we get this jail population down to 4,000. We need to keep it there. There is no reason that once we get there, it should shoot back up to 5,500 or 6,000. You know, I want to say, Craig, after Hurricane Katrina, because I'm in contact with the public defender there, they had 6,700 people in their jail during Hurricane Katrina. Guess what their jail is now? It's at 900. Hmm. So what does that tell you? It tells you that we are safer without a large jail. It tells you that we can keep the public safe by releasing clients pretrial, allowing them to fight their cases out, not holding people because they're poor because they can't afford a cash bail. 
So we can do this, but we've got to be very focused on bail reform and allowing the people who have not been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt the right to fight their case from home. And at least in the uh, Illinois legislature, it seems to me that the, the other argument for people who were on the other side is that it's also cheaper to, to do it this way. And that's why you've gotten some votes that have moved uh, the reform efforts along. And I suspect that you still have some more people to convince. Absolutely. We'll still have people to convince. And it takes time. I get it because uh, we've done it wrong for so many decades. But we can, we can protect the public and also make sure that people's constitutional rights are protected too. So I think, we, I think we're on the right path. Unfortunately, it took a, a COVID-19 virus to help us see how wrong mass incarceration is. I mean, you know, the story that mostly uh, black people are getting the virus. I mean, think about that. It's just horrible because they are living in these communities, right? with disinvestment for years and segregation and racist policing. So all of these things have really come to a head during this virus. And let's not go back. Let's go forward. Well, that's going to be the final word. Amy Campanelli, Pub Cook County Public Defender, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, to our listeners, You're welcome. Thanks. If you would like a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at wbbmnewsradio.com. Just follow the podcast links. You can also find our podcast on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.